Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Take your copy of God's Word and join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Excuse me, chapter 6. Chapter 6 this morning. We're looking at uh, verses 17 to 19. Taking a quick opportunity since we've got our minds situated on money and possessions and budgets and all this kind of stuff. Um, we try and do at least one message a year on this topic um, just whether we need it or not, and whether, whether things are good or bad, um, whatever the case may be, it's just good to uh, take a step back and ask ourselves, you know, what, what is my perspective on money and possessions, and is that perspective continuing to align with Scripture? So we're going to look at verses 17 and 19 this morning. Randy Alcorn has a helpful little book um, entitled The Treasure Principle. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you've read it. Uh, and in the beginning of that book, he has a, an illustration uh, that he uses, I think is a very helpful visual for us to think about um, our lives. He uses the illustration of a line, kind of a long, continuous line, and a dot. Uh, the line in the illustration refers to and, and speaks to uh, the future. It re- represents all of time, uh, created time in order, all the way reaching into eternity. I mean, it, it, it's got an arrow, right? It's a ray that goes on infinitely, um, the line of eternity. And a dot is a single point along that line that represents our earthly lives. And so he, he uses this picture. He says, right now, we're living within the dot, you know, for us, that, that dot. That might represent 70 years, uh, 80 years, the scripture says, if the Lord is kind. Uh, maybe 90 if you're really, um, really blessed. You know, it's a blip, though. The dot is a blip along the infinite line of eternity that we live. Um, and so the question that he asks is, what is it that we are living for? Are we living for um, the dot, or are we living for the line? Because a short per- short-sighted person lives for the dot. That is the person who's living for the things of this world, this earth, and all the stuff that ends up in, in the trash heap of, of, uh, at the end of the day. But the person who uh, lives for the line, they're someone who has evaluated the future returns that God has laid out for us in his word. And uh, it's and we choose those who live for the line. We are choosing to live uh, to make heavenly investments. We choose eternal transactions and to uh, lay up treasure in heaven that will pay a reward that will go on and on uh, for all eternity. And so the question that we are forced to ask is, um, you know, are you living for the line or are you living for the dot? That that's the question that the that the illustration he uses is meant to ask. And I found it helpful because that is the question that Paul uh, asks and sort of answers here in our text this morning. Are you living for the line or are you living for the dot? Um, And that's not just referring to financial stewardship. That would spill over to what we were talking about several weeks ago when we were thinking about, well, how are we redeeming the time that God's given us? So it has to do with our time. It has to do with our career path. It has to do um, with why we get up in the morning. It has to do with finding uh, what it is we find our happiness in. All of that is kind of gathered up in this whole picture of the uh, the line and the dot. And um, it forces us, when we ask that question, what are you living for? Uh, it forces us to evaluate not just how we spend our money, but even beyond that, 
Or maybe behind that, what are the idols of our heart or what are the things that captivate our soul um, that might be, pursue, might be kind of uh, taking us off course that would be causing us to replace uh, godly pursuits with vain pursuits uh, and vain priorities. So, um, so we want to ask this question, are you living for the line or are you living for the dot? And in our attempt to kind of expose or think about, is there any idols that are kind of in the background here of living, are we living for stuff? We don't, when we, when we talk about that, we don't want the pendulum to swing back the other way, which it can, obviously, uh, if we're not careful. And where we think that the only time that we're living in God's will, underneath God's will, is if we're living, you know, on some remote outpost in the jungle somewhere or that we're sleeping on straw mats or, or that we've taken a vow of poverty of some kind or something like that. That's, that's not what we're saying here when we say we live for the line and not the dot. Um, the scriptures have a lot to say about money and possessions and how we think about those things. They also have a lot to say about uh, work and recreation and, and rest and, and God's good gifts. And so... Um, and it speaks about giftedness and service and so many other things that we do with resources. And so our goal this morning, as we come to the scriptures, is to uh, plumb those depths to some degree in this passage and uh, to communicate what God's words, nothing more, nothing less. We don't want to go further than the scriptures, and we don't wanna, but we also don't want to fall behind or be less than what God has said in his word. And so Paul is at the end of this letter, 1 Timothy uh, many of you may realize, was Paul's letter to Timothy in Ephesus instructing him how to handle so many things as a shepherd. And he ends the letter with this uh, exhortation in verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. As Paul makes this final approach here in the letter, and this, these final verses are really the landing strip, he is forcing every one of us to evaluate our attitudes and our actions when it comes to money, and material possessions. In verse 19, he illuminates, if you will, the runway by saying that uh, everyone is to be instructed about storing up for themselves, he says here, a good foundation for the future. And he ends it by describing the, that life that we're pursuing, that that life that we want to grab hold of is life indeed, which of course we know is referring to eternal life. It's not talking about this uh, life in its temporal sense. He's talking about laying up treasures in heaven. He's talking about living for the line of eternity and not getting lost in the short-sightedness of the dot. If you go back into verses 6 to 10, he commended, uh, he, again, he talked about money a little bit back then. He commended true godliness which is contentment, uh, which is marked out by contentment. And then he contrasts that with the agony of greed uh, in verses 8, 9, and, uh, excuse me, 9 and 10. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which actually can be a, uh, something that takes them away from the true knowledge of God. 
uh, or that it reveals where their heart really has been all along, more likely. And so um, he is calling us to take hold of life eternal. Verse 12, he tells Timothy, he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So um, in the preceding section, Paul is concerned with laying hold of life indeed, living for the line. And, uh, and we need to be concerned about that as well. So our goal in our, in our study this morning is to shepherd our hearts toward God's priorities when it comes to um, life indeed, that we would be captivated and zealous and laboring for that which is life eternal. That's what we want to consider. And to do that, we're going to ask two questions from the text this morning. There's kind of two implication questions that come out of the text in verses 17 to 19. And then the first question is this, does my attitude reflect God's attitude toward money and possessions? And secondly, do my actions reflect God's attitude toward money and material possessions? Because Paul's instruction is going to help us answer those two questions. And that's really our outline for this morning as we look at the text. So the beginning, the first question that rises out of Paul's instruction is in verse 17. And the question we said is this, does my attitude, excuse me, does my attitude reflect God's attitude toward money and material possessions? Because Paul uh, Paul here has some very specific instructions. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He is writing to a church and Paul says, talk to those who are rich in this present world and tell them something. The Bible makes it clear again and again, that wealth is always going to be, always going to be distributed along a spectrum. No matter what situation, no matter what point in human history you find yourselves, wealth is always, material wealth is always distributed along a spectrum. There will be those who are rich. He speaks about them here in verse 17. Proverbs 30 speaks about those who have average wealth. He, he prays that he would be one, Solomon did, or maybe it was Lemuel, I'm not sure who's in chapter 30 there. But he says, give me neither poverty nor riches. So that would be kind of like a middle class, if you will. And then there will always be those who are poor in our world, no matter what context you find yourself. Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. So again, wealth is always on a spectrum. The Bible never makes the case that a certain amount of wealth is good or that a certain amount of wealth is bad. Money and possessions are material are, are, are morally neutral, scripturally. Um, the love of money, that's sinful. Uh, greed is sinful. Uh, but money in and of itself is not the problem. Um, it's morally neutral. Uh, and rich and poor are relative measures, not absolute measures. Uh, so um, what was considered rich in Paul's day would probably be considered meh in our day, most likely, um, because people just didn't have the means or opportunity to create the kind of wealth that we enjoy. Uh, vice versa, those who are considered uh, poor in our culture would be considered exceedingly rich, most likely in an ancient context in Paul's day. So, so 
like you say, wealth is relative. Rich and poor are not absolute terms like at this much money you're rich and at this much money you're poor. No, it, it just depends. It's, it's, like I say, it's always on a spectrum. The issue is not how much you have or don't have. The issue that the scriptures always come back to is how do you think about whatever God has given you? That's the idea. Whatever God has entrusted to you, which comes back to the whole issue of stewardship. All things, including our material wealth, belong to God. And, uh, and so really, we're just managing. <laughs> we're just managing the store. Everything he's given to us, we are managing it for his purposes as believers. He's given it to us, and he calls us to manage it. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 4 um, not too long ago. So in verse 17 here, Paul is giving specific instruction to believers who would, in Paul's day, would fall into the category or heading of wealthy, those who are rich in this present world. But don't miss what Paul's saying. You say, well, I'm not rich, so I can just ignore what Paul's saying here. No, that's not the point at all. That's not what he's, how we should approach the text. It Really, whatever station you find yourself in life, you need to ask yourself, does my attitude reflect God's attitude toward money and material possessions? Because Paul's instruction here reveals God's attitude toward money. And the first thing that he points out in verse 17 is that we should never be conceited or proud because of our financial standing, whatever that case, whatever that might be. To be conceited here literally means to be high-minded, to become marked out by superiority and disdain for those below you who you view as unworthy. It's different than the word conceited used in chapter 6, verse 4, where he speaks about false teachers who are conceited and understand nothing. It's a different term. Here, it describes those who have an arrogant superiority about them. And Paul's warning that those who are rich in his present world should never fall victim or allow themselves to be taken astray by feeling as though they are superior to those below them financially, those whom God has not prospered in the same way. And unfortunately, with material possessions, that become, over time especially, that becomes a very real temptation. Um, when we're, we, we achieve a certain level of success financially, it's easy to start looking down your nose at people who aren't as successful and just try and, you know, um, think, think about them in a way that is um, inconsistent with God's attitude toward money and possessions and those even who are poor. Uh, if you look with me, uh, at, uh, look at Deuteronomy for just a second, Deuteronomy 8, because even back in the day, Moses warned Israel not to, don't, don't make this mistake. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, look at chapter 8 and verse 11. Moses gives instruction to Israel and he says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and ordinances and statutes. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, of course, that was what would happen if they obeyed the covenant. God said, I will prosper you, I'll bless you, I'll bring you into the land. He says, then, if you allow that all to happen, as, as I've promised, and I'll do that, 
Be careful that when that happens, your heart will not become proud, verse 14, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 16, and in the wilderness you forget how he fed you with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my power and my strength of my hand have made me this wealth. He says, no, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. He warns them not to forget that God gave them everything, that before God broke through, they were slaves in a foreign land. They had nothing. They had no land. They had no opportunity. They were under bondage, and God brought them out was going to bring them into the land, was going to prosper them in every way as he promised, and that he was the one that gave them those things. Moses warned them not to think as if, as verse 17 says, that my power and strength and the strength of my hand made us, made me this wealth. It's always a temptation. God is the owner of everything. And even if God has prospered you much, at the end of the day, Everything we have, he's given it to us as stewards to manage. And we have nothing in and of ourselves. Which is why Paul, if you remember in 1 Corinthians 4, comes back at the Corinthians and warns them in verse 7, who regards you as superior and what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, which they obviously did, why do you boast as if you had not received it? This was the issue in Corinth. Theirs wasn't so much money as it was influence and power. And uh, they were movers and shakers in the church. And they were looking down their noses at Paul and uh, viewing him as uh, because of his difficulties and things like that. And, and looking at him as, as he went the way of the cross as somehow being less than him. And Paul says, wait a second, where is this air of superiority coming from? Um, what do you have that God didn't give you? And the answer is, Everything you have, God gave you. You've received nothing that wasn't from God. And if you did receive it from God, why are you acting around, walking around acting as if you are a self-made man or a self-made woman? Because that is clearly not biblical. When I was, um, before I came on full-time at the church, for years I worked for a software company that was headquartered in my hometown in Naples, and the owner, the sole owner and president and CEO and king of the universe, whatever titles he ascribed to himself, of that company, um, he, he was the only owner and the only equity holder, and the company was very good, uh, very prosperous. It, it's heyday, taking in roughly uh, $350 million a year in revenue, So all that profit accrued to this one man. He owned it all, um, and uh, he was the head of the company. And he was a professing Christian, um, which he never failed to mention uh, in his, uh, if you talk to him or in kind of uh, company-wide communication. But sadly, the man's reputation, the owner of this company, his reputation was exactly what Paul warns about here in this text. His reputation was one of arrogance toward those around him, and it revealed itself um, with anyone that interacted with him on a day-to-day basis. I remember one particular um, 
email that went out to the whole company. Of course, it was a company had offices all over the world. Uh, and he was um, excited about this new big deal that they had closed. It was going to bring in millions of dollars in revenue and was going to open the door for more and more opportunities. And he sent out this email. And I just remember reading it and just being flabbergasted because the whole thing is him describing all the things that the VP of sales and the executive vice president of marketing and, and all, these in, all these very successful people uh, and director of worldwide facilities, all these people that had been a part of this, this deal coming together. And he spent the whole email saying, I'm so thankful for the little people who did this and the little people who did that. And the little people who, you know, these are not little people. These were people that were successful. These are people that, you know, were, uh, they had done a lot and accomplished a lot and made a lot possible. And he ended his email by saying that if it wasn't for all the little people, this great deal would never have gotten done. And, uh, you know, so what he thought was going to be a note of encouragement was very telling, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it was very obvious that we were the little people who subsisted on, uh, you know, five and six figure salaries. And he was the big fish who was, you know, living in his $60 million home and flying around the world on his private jet. And uh, he looked down on others and forgot that everything that he had, God had given him. And as believers, um, we need to be careful to guard against this kind of conceit. We should never look down our noses at others because of our or their financial position. Because God is the one who has blessed us. God is the one who has graciously given us the ability to earn or do anything. And we have to consider then all the credit and all the glory goes back to him for whatever he gives us, whatever he has blessed us with. So God wants us to guard against conceit when it comes to finances and material possessions. But Paul goes on here in verse 17 to instruct those who are rich also not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. So over and again, the word of God reminds us that material wealth, and this is probably a good takeaway, as you, you get through your Bible reading this year, just file this away in the back of your mind. Wealth is uncertain. If you look across scripture, wealth on this earth is uncertain and it is elusive. Those are two terms, I think, that are very much in play whenever you see the scriptures speak about money and possessions. You remember Job's calamity, right? One minute, he is the greatest man of the East. Children, herds and flocks. I mean, he's a mover and a shaker. And the next minute, what? Nothing. His family is gone. His wealth is gone. Everything is taken away from him. You remember Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5 that earthly riches, he reminds us, are never satisfy. He reminds us they are consumed more quickly than anything else. They lead to anxiety. He says that they cause inward pain. He goes on in verse 14 of chapter 5 to show that they evaporate quickly through bad investments. He says they are taken away from us when we die. Can't take it with you. And verse 17 of Ecclesiastes 5 says, they can even lead to fear and paranoia as we try and hold on to whatever um, God has given us. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6 when he said that earthly treasures are a continuous liability. They're, sub, they're a liability to be consumed, they're a liability to be corroded, and they're a liability to be carried away 
by other people. Thieves break in and steal. So earthly riches, scripturally, are inherently uncertain and they are elusive. And even our own experience, I think, uh, over the years, if you've lived long enough, you know that's the case. I remember at the peak, uh, I grew up in Florida, South Florida, at the peak of the real estate boom in the early 2000s. Um, properties uh, were doubling in value every one to two years, depending on what, what you had uh, purchased. And I remember, uh, I remember as a young person, straight out of college, I purchased a condo in August of 2004, and then in uh, January of 2006, just 17 months later, as I was going off to seminary, I sold that condo, and just providentially, it wasn't trying to time the market or anything, that property nearly doubled in value in 17 months. And I sold it, and I lived off that money until it was all gone in seminary to pay for school and everything else. But uh, during that time in seminary, of course, the Great Recession, right? The bubble pops, everything implodes, home equity disappears. And uh, when we went back to Naples five years later, that woman who purchased my condo, she was down two-thirds of her initial investment. She was upside down nearly two-thirds And she walked away from the unit. She couldn't afford it anymore. She owed more on it than it was worth. And um, and it's just like that. That's how it is. Money comes and money goes. And Paul's instruction here is a warning for each and every one of us to remember that earthly wealth is fleeting. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And there's nothing that says your, your car has to appreciate in value. There's nothing that says your home has to appreciate in value. There's no fixed law. It says that the stock market has to keep going up. It certainly has in the past, but it doesn't mean that it will tomorrow or the next day or the next year. And we shouldn't fix our hope on anything permanently. We are to keep things in their proper perspective. Earthly riches are God's gracious gift to us to be thankful for. They are God's gift to us to employ for his gospel purposes. They are gifts to us to enjoy but nothing more than that. Instead, we're to anchor our soul not to stuff, but to God. We anchor our soul to him. God alone is the only sure and trusted foundation. Not only did Job lose everything, but Job, with the right perspective, Scripture says in chapter 1, though all that was taken away from him, through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Why? Because he hadn't fixed his hope on those things that were taken away from him. Solomon, while he describes the heartache of riches, he also wrote in chapter 5 that God has given riches and wealth, and he's empowered us who have those things to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. It is the gift of God. So life is not for eternal gain. This life is a gift, and it's to be enjoyed. Jesus said, that while earthly riches are elusive, he still encouraged us to lay up treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so the scriptures refrain over and over and again is this, trust God and not riches. Trust, put your trust in God and not in riches. So the question you have to ask yourself is, do I have that attitude? Is, is that my attitude 
when it comes with material possessions? Are you walking in humility? Like we saw here, recognizing that everything you have, you've received from him to be managed and to be stewarded to his glory and for his purposes. And secondly, are you anchoring your hope and your trust, your security, your um, joy? Is it anchored to Christ and not the stuff of this world? Very important to evaluate our hearts on that regularly. We're to guard against the temptation to become conceited and to guard against the temptation to put our trust in the uncertainty of riches. So that's the first question that comes out of verse 17. Do you have the right attitude about money and possessions? God's attitude. Secondly, in verse 18 and 19, we have to ask this question, and it rises out of Paul's instruction here. Do my actions demonstrate that? It's easy for us to say, yeah, no, I have the right attitude, God. But do our actions back that up? Do my actions reflect God's priorities when it comes to money and material possessions? It's not just enough. It's not enough to just have the right attitude in our heads. That knowledge has to work itself out in the way that we live and the way that we approach and use resources so that we can be obedient. Look at verse 18. He says, instruct them, these rich people, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share. So he moves from attitudes in verse 17 to actions in verse 18. Those who are rich are, quote, to do good. This is just a general instruction highlighting the importance of benefiting others in practical and tangible ways. Um, Paul uses the same word in Acts 14, verse 17, when he talks about how God does good to all men. And some of those good things include bringing rain, snow, ice, um, fruitful seasons, satisfying our hearts with food and gladness. Um, so, so doing good is kind of just a general benefiting others. He says, instruct those who are rich to be rich in good works. This, again, carries the idea of living a life that overflows with love and good deeds to others um, because God has filled up our hearts. We are to be those who are generous. This is a key orienting principle when it comes to money and possessions. If there's one thing that the scripture makes clear is that as God's people, when it comes to money and possessions, we should be generous. Generosity is, is the lifeblood of the believer's heart. Generosity defines the believer's attitude toward money. It's the opposite, the polar opposite of its, our fleshly selfishness. Selfishness says, I'm going to hoard. I'm going to keep for myself. I'm going to spend it on myself or use these things to enrich myself. Whereas the believer's attitude is one of being, as we'll see next, ready to share, ready to give, right? This has the idea, it's the same root of this word to, be sh to share here in verse 18 has the same root word for fellowship. It carries the idea of a shared life. And that, of course, includes our material possessions. We can break this down. Of course, you look at verse 18, you can break it down into multiple, you know, okay, what's the difference between doing good and being rich in good works and being ready to share? You say, well, what's the nuances of each? And I don't even think that's what Paul wants us to consider. He's stringing these phrases together 
to build a force of argument. And his point is this. He wants us to be investing our lives in that which is eternal and that which is uh, forever in heaven rather than what is on earth. This is the point. He's not, there's no real difference between any of these terms. It's just bang, bang, bang. He's just hitting you with multiple terms to reinforce that we need to live for the line. We need to invest in that which is eternal and not live for the things of this world. Uh, Luke 12. Look at Luke 12 for a second because Jesus gives a parable here that's very, very helpful. And he's in this crowd of people and he's teaching and all of a sudden this gentleman blurts out, he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. All of a sudden, Jesus becomes this, um, he seems like the kind of person that would give, them, uh, give him a judgment on this. And he said to him, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And then if you look at verse um, 16, he says, and then he told him a parable. He says, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, for this very night, your soul is required of you. And now... Who will own what you have prepared? And so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable is a simple one that illustrates a singular spiritual truth. It was in response to the man's greedy desire to have Jesus arbitrate his family disagreement so that he could get the money he thought he was owed. And the story is meant to show that um, when we are greedy and when we are covetous and when we are clinging to the things of this world, um, that we will have, or if we are blessed, we will have a lot of choices that we need to make. Um, Wealth always creates choices. And the question is, what are we going to do with what God's given us? This man decided to invest in more stuff. And the more he invested in this stuff the more secure he felt, but in reality, God took it all away from him in an instant. His life was taken from him. And the point of the parable is in verse 22. So Jesus said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing." The point Jesus is trying to make is that life is about more than stuff. It's about more than barns and all the other things that go with it. And that you and I, like that rich man here today, we could very well be gone tomorrow. We're, no guarantee, we're not guaranteed the next day. And we need to lay hold of that which is life indeed, life eternal. Which is why if you look down at verse 31, Jesus says this, Seek first His kingdom, God's kingdom, and these things materially will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to charity and make yourselves money belts which do not wear out and unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. This is one of the most underappreciated aspects of Christian service that is laid out here. When we do good, when we're rich in good works, as Paul says here, when we're generous, when we are ready to share with others, you are not just benefiting your, uh, them, you are actually benefiting yourself as well. You're simultaneously doing good for yourself. And that's Paul's point. If you go back to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 19, you are storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that, this is the reason, you and I may take hold of that which is life indeed. He's he's saying that doing these things is amassing for yourselves treasure in heaven. Eternal reward that will both glorify God and bless others now in the present, but will also enrich our experience of glory and enjoyment of God forever and ever. So the second question that arises out of Paul's instruction here in verses 17 to 18 18 to 19 is this. Do my actions reflect God's priorities when it comes to money and material possessions? Are you doing eternal good to others? Are you being rich in good works? Are you being generous? Are you ready to share with others? Are you making eternal investments that will pay spiritual dividends in this life and in the life to come? Would someone who observes your life and looks at your your, uh, debits and credits on your accounts and sees where the money's coming and going, would they see those things and say, yeah, that person, they, they are heavenly minded. They are laying up treasure in heaven because that's what's, that's where their heart is. You know, there's. I, I remember taking a, a, a pastor's home course in seminary years ago, and they had a gentleman come in, and he, he was basically like kind of encouraging us to budget and, and just basically manage our money wisely. Um, and he gave a whole bunch of practical instruction, but he, he came back to some of these things we even we've talked about this morning. And he pointed out that. Um, that that there's no greater there's no greater testimony to Christian maturity than financial stewardship. Poor financial stewardship almost always reveals financial, I mean, uh, spiritual immaturity in some material way. And so that if we are going to be leading our congregation and as elders and setting the pace in that, that we need to manage our resources. Uh, well and manage them with a heavenly mindset. And I'm thankful, and I just want to stop here and acknowledge that the church has been exceedingly generous to us. And so it is easy for us to set that example. It's easy for us to have that mindset. No temptation has ever been put before us in the time that we've been here, and we're thankful for that. And I recognize that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost as you give to support the ministry. Because let's face it, if you look at the budget, I'm the most expensive thing in that budget. <laughs> but, um, but whether the Lord has blessed us with a lot or a little, I always want to, and you and I should always want to have the mindset of being generous, laying up treasure for the future. And we want our resources and our 
our checking accounts, if you will, to reflect that at that mindset. So Paul's instruction here reminds us that we need to always be evaluating our lives when it comes to material possessions. Because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not when we're uh, poor that we really feel um, the weight of it. It's when, when we have a lot. And I think sometimes when we have a lot, it's easy to be very poor steward of our money, even though we don't realize that we're being bad stewards of it. So it's important that we invest in that which is eternal. Um, there's a book entitled The Sum of Small Things, A Theory of the Aspirational Class. And the author of that book observes that instead of hoarding the flashy uh, accoutrement, if you will, that were formerly used to signal being rich in the, in the world, Rolexes and sports cars and yachts and country club memberships and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that's kind of the, that's how the rich people flaunted their wealth in the past. The less obnoxious approach is now to direct spending to more inconspicuous products and services. And uh, the author notes that the, that uh, improve those things that improve quality of life and pass on a legacy to our children and to their um, and grandchildren. And he uh, she argues that there's been a replacing of the kind of obnoxious Louis the Fourteenth exhibitionism of like gold pillars in your you know in penthouse uh, whatever and pedigree pets and all that kind of nonsense. Uh, that's been replaced with uh, au pairs and chefs and personal trainers and cleaning services and private tutors um, for both academics and, and sports. You know, now yoga lessons and adventure vacations and, and uh, all those kinds of experience-based enjoyments are more popular than the sort of gold-plated, silver-spooned, visible wealth that, that we've come to know from generations past. She calls this uh, tectonic shift between um, the kind of the blue-blood moneyed elite of yesteryear and the Ivy League Silicon Valley. Uh, they, she, the, the, the big difference for, for her is this description, uh, which she calls inconspicuous consumption. It's uh, there are always are always going to be those odd trust fund babies, uh, but they don't exist in in mass anymore. The sort of, sort of like Downton Abbey folks, you know, where it's like, come bring me something to eat. No, it's it's more of a, it's 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 more value is placed on food and lifestyle and education and experiences, um, and uh, and people are working hard, sometimes way too long, too too much to achieve these things. And she terms, it, she terms it inconspicuous consumption. And I like that term, not because I like what, that's, what that is, but I think Paul in this passage calls us to pursue a whole different category of inconspicuous consumption. In other words, if your attitude reflects God's attitude toward material possessions, if your actions reflect God's priorities toward material possessions, you're not just working to live or working to prosper. You're working to be rich toward God and working to give. And that's the idea. Does the word of God allow us to invest our wealth and our well-being and, our, and, and the resources he's given us? Can we invest that in our children? Sure. Can we invest that in a vacation? 
absolutely. Um, can we buy a home and, yeah, and own a car? And, yeah, we can do all those things, and those aren't wrong. But what we want to do is invest ultimately in an eternity of riches that reaches beyond this world. And that has to be our, fri- our primary attitude. We're not only willing to put in hours on the job, if those of us who are working, but we're willing to spend and be expended for souls. That we're willing to invest in people in the church to see Christ and his, his church grown, to see disciples one to Christ. Um, we, we want to invest in that which is forever, to win as you know, Jesus uh, really confronted the Pharisees because they, wanted, they didn't want to invest. Uh, he says the unbelievers of this world are more shrewd with the resources they've been given than believers, and that's wrong. He says in Luke, I think it's Luke 16, he says you, 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 you should make for yourselves friends in heaven with unrighteous wealth. In other words, use what God's given you to invest in that which is eternal. The pursuit of eternal happiness is the ultimate inconspicuous expenditure. We value, as Christians, anonymous giving, inconspicuous generosity, and behind-the-scenes service over any form of self-promotion or public credit. Inconspicuous spending is the financial paradigm of every true disciple of Christ. We don't want to just look rich. We don't want to act rich like the man in Proverbs who parades his wealth but actually is broke. No, no. We want to be rich. But how you define rich has to be from the Scriptures. We want to be rich, really rich, truly rich, which means our hearts and our lives are consumed with laying up treasure in heaven and not on this earth. We live, in other words, for the line and not for the dot. So we go back to that question, which are you living for? Are you living for the line of eternity or are you living for the dot? This present life, that little speck of 70, 80, 90 years, whatever the Lord would give you, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to what he will what is before us is we are never dying souls. That's the question the text asks this morning. And we have to evaluate our heart. And we need to continually evaluate our heart in that because it can change. If you're living for the line of eternity, that is your heart reflects God's attitude toward money and possessions and your actions reflect God's money uh, attitude toward money and possessions, great. Press on. Excel still more, as Paul says. And many of you, I'm sure, are doing that. And if you've recognized this morning that you're living wrongly for the dot, well, this is an opportunity for you to repent and to put your trust in Christ and to, and to begin to sow that which is eternal so that you would reap eternal rewards. We don't want to fall into the trap of getting to that final day as we studied in 1 Corinthians 4 and find out that everything that we were invested in wasn't really worth anything. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3. We don't want to be like those who come to the end and find out that it's all burned up. We want to lay up treasure in heaven. We want to 
build on the sure foundation, precious stones, gold, silver. Those are the things that describe eternal rewards. And God is not so unjust as to forget about those things. And so as we invest in them, we pour into them, we will receive back exponentially more than we give. And so as you think about the year ahead, new year, um, a new budget maybe for you, whatever the case may be, let's have that attitude. We need to ask ourselves, do I have God's perspective, my, his attitude toward money, and are my actions backing that attitude up? Um, and if they are great, then praise the Lord for that. That's his work in you. If he's prospered you, praise God, you know, and uh, let's not fix our hope on those things. Let's keep that right perspective. I think one of the best things that ever happened to us as a family was years ago, we had to live on next to nothing for a season, many years. And uh, we went from having a lot to not having hardly anything. And then God has been so kind to bless us again. But listen, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us because it caused us to live lean. And now with what we have, we hold on to it with hopefully more of an open hand. And we want to come back to that. And so this is for me, this is for you, this is for our church, that the Lord would use this to remind us that um, what we're investing in needs to reap eternal rewards. Let me pray for us as we dismiss. Lord, thank you again for this um, reminder, this confrontation, this instruction, as Paul says, Lord, in many ways, we are rich. Um, even those of us who are not, uh, may feel like we're just kind of scraping by, even then we've been given so much. Um, we, we are, and, and we know that wealth and resources are, those things are uh, all relative. Um, the rich now are infinitely richer than those in ancient days, and those who are poor now are infinitely richer than those in, in the past. And yet, um, Lord, no matter what you've entrusted to us, help us to steward it for your purposes. Lord, continue to supply what our church needs through that generosity that has so marked out our church over the last several years. And Lord, I echo Son's thankfulness and and just what you have so done through our church to allow us the resources that people have given. We pray that we would use those and invest those in a way that would advance your church uh, on earth through winning souls to Christ, discipling them into maturity, and then sending them out to make more disciples until you return. Lord, help us to be about that task. Lord, help us to run to win. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.